the Silk and Steel podcast. I'm your host, Carl Da. Today we have a very special show for you guys. Um, I have come across a long-term China expat who did multiple epic bicycling trips all the way across China from north to south and from east to west. Welcome to the show, Mr. Jerry. Hi, Carl. Hi. Uh, so Jerry, I came across you on Twitter. Uh, initially, it's because uh, you posted about your bicycling trip to Xinjiang, and that's you know right now Xinjiang is a big topic in Western media, in particular, um, and there's just a lot of misinformation um, about the place because it's remote. You know, very few people actually travel there. So I thought you. You know, it would be a great idea to have you on the show to actually talk about your own uh, recent travel there. But before we talk about that, I actually like to um, I want you to talk about a little bit about your own background, how you came to China, because you, you have such a fascinating, fascinating background. Um, can you just give us an audience um, an idea how how and why you came to China? Sure, Carl. Thank you, first of all, for inviting me to, to come on your podcast. I'm a big fan of yours, and it's uh, it's great to be invited. Uh, I'm my first brush with fame, so I'm very proud of uh, being part of this. So, yeah, I came to China in 2004, in October 2004, and I came here very simply as a, an English teacher. I had a contract to teach one school year. The school year had already started, and they hadn't been able to find a teacher and I applied for the job in Australia. I was in Australia and I'd just been studying. Um, I, I was already 46 years old at that stage. I was made redundant by a multinational global company and I'd been a general manager in that company for the last two or three years that I was there. Um, so after I left that company, I was a little bit at a loss as to what to do. And I thought, well, I'll go out and I'll go and get one of these TEFL courses, teach English as a foreign language. And that way I can travel the world and get paid and uh, just relax for the rest of my life kind of thing. Nice. Um, and I think a lot of people do this. They come to China late in their life. And a lot of people come to China early in their life and do two or three years, then go back and have a career with that Chinese experience in their background. Some of them are simple backpackers who, who don't gain very much. And some of them are very, very smart young people who gain a lot. Uh, and there's a, there's a wide variety of everything in between. So I came here uh, with a, a CELTA, a Certificate of English Language Teaching to Adults. And I had a job as an IELTS teacher. Uh, that was 2004. I stayed in that school that I was working at until my contract finished in 2005. And uh, my first feeling about China was that I didn't enjoy it very much. I, I really wanted to get out, get home, get my contract done and just get out of it. But by the time the contract finished, I started counting down days to having to go home and decided I didn't really want to. Uh, something changed, I can't put my finger on it, but something changed and made me want to stay, so I went looking for another job. Jerry? When you start recording, the quality goes down. Ah, okay. Um, mm. Yeah, I blame it on my internet connection. It's, it's first of all, it is Indonesia, and uh, and it's also because of COVID. Uh, it's it's a combination of things. You can, you probably have much better internet in China, <laughs> despite sure we do. You know, 
Positive, yes. we do. Yes. Yeah. Um, so now we are uh, on air again. Um, and last time we spoke, you talk about um, staying for the fir your first contract in China. Uh, you know, from gr you started from really hating your stay in China to really loving it, and then you decided mm -hmm. to uh, look for another job in China. Um, can we pick up from there? Sure, yeah. Um, going back to 2005, I started looking for another job. I found that I wasn't ready to go home. I was still enjoying the China experience and I looked for and found another job. I got a contract in a language center and whilst there I met my wife. Uh, she became my girlfriend, then became my wife and uh, we're still together 15 years later. Um, oh, right. Been married for 11 of those. <laughs> Thank you. Um, we, uh, we we had a, a couple of things going on back in those days. I finished my contract, which wasn't a particularly long one. They gave me a contract to last until the Chinese New Year, which is quite common here. They don't want to give you a contract over a holiday because they have to pay you when there's no students or customers. Mm. So they gave me a contract to the Chinese New Year. I worked in that school right the way through till about February or late January, I can't remember. And I had another job offer with another guy who seemed to be very above board, but turned out not to be. He was a bit of a crook. I went to work for him for a couple of months and, and didn't get paid properly. He wasn't paying his staff properly. He wasn't running a very good business. And I, I quit that. And uh, through a connection that I had at the time, uh, a friend, of a student actually, former student now, but a student then, uh, set up, helped me to set up my own school in a shopping center that she and her husband were the owners of. Uh, it's nice. a big shopping center. People in, in Zhongshan, where we live, would, would know this shopping center, but uh, it, it was a big shopping center and it needed something like this to attract some customers, and that's what we did. So for the next three years, we ran our own business. We opened a coffee shop in the shopping center too. And then I got uh, a job offer to go and teach in an international school here, uh, which was good because uh, it meant that I could work Monday to Friday, nine to five, instead of uh, seven days a week, 365 days a year, mm. pretty much. Basically, the only holidays we got when we were running our own business inside of a shopping center was uh, holidays that were prescribed public holidays. Yeah. And then people don't go for classes. So it was pretty tough business. And uh, we had three years of that. Um, running our own business and and then started working as a teacher in a school again uh, shortly after that I worked in um, a training I worked as a training manager in a company and I've been a, a teacher trainer a TEFL trainer uh, which has taken me to places like Beijing Harbin uh, Hohot in Inner Mongolia to spend some time training teachers in how to how to teach English so around the world there's probably several hundred teachers who uh, started their teaching life in China in a course I was one of the trainers for. So that's quite interesting having a background like that. Wow. Uh, then in uh, 19, uh, well, well, 2018 I turned 60 years of age. I'm 62 years old now and um, when you turn 60 in China you don't get a working permit, a working visa anymore. They, uh -huh. they, they assume that you're ready to retire. Mm. So I effectively retired from the workforce uh, two years ago and I'm living here now on a, on a pension. I was uh, way, way back, a long, long time ago when I was 18, 
until I was 28. I was a police officer in the UK and that gave me a, a small pension. If I'd stayed there for 30 years or 20 years, I'd have a nice pension now. But uh, it gives me a small pension and I can live on that uh, because we own an apartment. We don't have very much in the way of overheads. Uh, it's, it's quite an easy life. And I have a little bit of writing and a little bit of editing to supplement the pension. It works Wait, quite so, well. So I, I, I first thought you were Aussie because uh, I thought I heard mm. Australia somewhere. So originally you came from UK, but you, you came to China via the way of Australia? Yeah, I lived in Australia for 18 years. I'm an Australian citizen. My, my passport is Australian, although I have a British passport. My visa is in an Australian passport. As far as the Chinese government are concerned, I'm an Australian citizen, which I am. Uh, when they give me the visa, they put it into an Australian passport. And I don't even know if they know I have a British passport because no one's ever asked me. But it's not important. I have dual citizenship. Yeah. It doesn't make yeah. any difference here. Chinese don't have it, but they don't, they don't have a problem with me having it. Uh, yeah, no, I, could go, I could go to the immigration department and get a new visa put into my new my British passport just as easily as my Australian passport, I think. Yeah, the way dual citizenship works is at least one country has to recognize uh, dual citizenship. Uh, but for, for because China does not recognize dual citizenship and U.S. doesn't recognize dual citizenship. So, you know, basically for anybody who came from China and became U.S. citizen, effectively they will be giving up their, their Chinese citizenship. Um, yes. You, so you you live in the city of Zhongshan pretty much since you moved to China. Uh, like that's, did you speak any Chinese when you first moved there? Uh, no, I could say ni hao. Uh, and I even knew some Cantonese. I could say lei hao. And that's about it, <laughs> which is pretty much the same say, thing, just means hello. I was going to say, because uh, Zhongshan, I understand that's, uh, that's a Cantonese-speaking region, right? Yes, yes. Yeah, the, the Cantonese people love it when I say, which literally means I don't speak it, but I can understand a little. And they love that. They think, they think I'm a, the hero worship me because I can say six words. It's, a, it's quite sad, really. I, I, I can get by in Mandarin, but uh, I, I'm not trained. I've never had lessons. I've just right. been here long enough to pick up enough. I I'll get into a taxi and I can tell the taxi where to go. Uh, but when he wants to start a conversation if he's asking me where I'm from I can tell him that if he asks me if I'm married have kids I can I can answer but if he asks me who I'm voting for in the next election I go what <laughs> what are you talking about you know when we get into a conversation I'm not conversational um, I, but I can certainly I can certainly survive I'm, I would I would describe my language as totally functional and that's all yeah. uh, I can get but, by. But but, you know, you'll be too fine because most conversation in China you have when you meet stranger probably will start with where you're from. And then, yeah. you know, yeah. what, what what work do you do and how much you make? Right. <laughs> exactly. <Something like> <laughs> exactly. And do you have a girlfriend? I don't know yeah. why they seem interested in that. I'm 62 years old. Do you have a girlfriend? No, I wish. But don't tell my wife. <laughs> um, yeah. It, <laughs> It really is. A, it's a strange world that we live in. The, 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 you can pretty much anticipate what questions you're going to get if you if you sit down and talk to somebody who's a complete stranger uh, and they don't speak English. 
Uh, I also, I mean, another thing that we need to remember, I use this as my excuse, but I am in an English environment. My whole working life was as a teacher or trainer of English and English teaching. And, and consequently, wherever I've been, I've been required to speak English in the environment and not learn Chinese. If I come over here to work in a factory and spent my time in the factory, then I would, I would guess that I would have up or had to learn a lot more. But because I came over to work in the English education environment, I've probably been a little lazy about learning Chinese. I should know more, uh, but I, I am functionally enough to get around. I mean, I've traveled all the way across China without interpreters, without translators, uh, and, and I've been to many, many different cities uh, and done work. I've been there traveling. And one of the things we're going to talk about is my bike riding. I yes. don't travel on my bike with a translator. So stuff like that, uh, I do have to get by. I am able to order food. I am able to get a hotel room. I am able to get directions. Uh, it's functional stuff. I can get by. So uh, as you mentioned, um, you bike ride. When I started yeah. to follow you on Twitter, I, I immediately noticed you are, uh, you know, that's one of your uh, biggest hobbies is, is to cycle around China. Um, so can mm. we, uh, before we start, let's, let's first talk about your, 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 your point of, um, uh, um, origin, right? The, the Zhongshan, the city you, you live in now and you have been living yeah. for the past 16 years. Uh, so, uh, to give, uh, my listeners, a geographic location of Zhongshan, my understanding. So you have been telling me Zhongshan is halfway between Guangzhou and Macau, right? So, so. Hong Kong is just a little to the side from there, right? Yeah, Hong Kong's the other side of the Pearl River. And I would say, I, I can tell you because I've cycled from Guangzhou to Zhuhai, when you get to Zhongshan, you're well over halfway. Uh, when, you, when you leave Guangzhou and travel to the south, you travel through um, Foshan, or Panyu, then Foshan, yep. uh, and then you, you get into the, the northern suburbs of Zhongshan. And when you reach there, you're well over halfway to the border of Macau. Uh, so from, from the southern border of Zhongshan to the border of Macau is probably maybe 15 kilometers uh, from where I am in Zhongshan, which is the center, is probably about 35 or 40 kilometers. Uh, I've cycled across to the border of Macau many times. It takes a couple of hours. And we're talking about two to three hours, including brake stops. Have they built the high-speed rail from uh, Guangzhou to Zhongshan yet? Uh, is that connected yes. now? Oh, yes. Yeah, I caught it yesterday. I was on it yesterday. Um, one, one, one of the things that I don't like about traveling is, is the requirement to use your passport and queue up. And it takes, I mean, it took me a long time. And we were talking about this before when we weren't recording. It took me longer to catch the high speed train from where I was yesterday than it would have done to cycle home from the hotel. Wow. If I'd left the hotel on my bike at exactly the same time, I would have been home sooner than wow. catching the taxi to the to Guangzhou South Station, going through the process of buying the ticket, 
waiting to go through the security, getting on. Actually, because the security takes so long, I missed the train that I was supposed to be on and had to wait an extra hour for the next train. Uh, then the train is only 25 or 26 minutes. It's not very long train journey. Uh, then, then I got off and had to, to go through another version of security, which didn't take long, so five to 10 minutes to get out of there. And then a taxi from the train station to home. I could have cycled it in a slightly shorter time. Wow. So you, mm. it took you longer to get to the train than actually the train ride itself. Um, and, yes. and I understand the, the process of buying a ticket. Yeah. Yeah, mm. I understand that is primarily because you, you are a holder of foreign passport, right? And then the Chinese right. public transportation system is kind of designed around the idea of QR code that's tied to like the Chinese national ID. So they, they didn't even really take any, any account of the foreigner when they even designed this system. Because my understanding is it's a lot easier for like a Chinese citizen to go uh, go to the train station and purchase a train. All they have to do just like scan a QR code and that's it, right? Well, don't get me yeah. wrong. My criticisms about the administrative or bureaucratic process don't take anything away from this system. That's yeah, easy. yeah. Now, I if I was I'm... traveling to Beijing tomorrow, I was going to say if I was traveling to Beijing tomorrow, I would rather go by train. It takes eight hours. Yeah. I would rather go by train than I would go by plane. Yes. Planes guaranteed to be delayed. All planes are delayed in China. It's a very common thing. Uh, Yes. But if you're, it takes eight hours and you're guaranteed to be on time. It's exactly eight hours to the minute you get on the train in Zhongshan, you get off the train in Beijing eight hours later. And, and you can just sit down. No one comes and says, could you please switch off your iPad, switch off your phone, switch off your electrical, whatever it is, or electronic yeah. things. They just, you get on, you can plug in. You've, uh, they don't have Wi-Fi on the trains yet, which I thought was rather strange. But they, they do have PowerPoints and they have chargers. So all you do is you put a couple of movies or a book or whatever it is that you want to do for the next few hours and you, and you won't get disturbed. It's great. And you can buy a drink. You can buy a meal. Um, it's the fast train system. The high speed train is amazing. And yes. I have been many different places on it. I also like the old green trains, the slow trains. I've, I've actually too. been to Xinjiang on a slow train. Uh, and I find that really refreshing. You get to meet people, talk to people, and they always yes. say, you know, why are you on this train? You're a foreigner. <laughs> you're, you're rich. You should be flying. Said, well, yes. I like to meet people. Yes. It, it's, a great, it's, a, it's a great melting pot. You know, you, you could be sitting next to a businessman or a farmer, and yep. you just have no idea. And, that, and, and everyone is really, really friendly. One of the things I love about China, you know, I, I watched Mike Pompeo say that he wants to, to free the wonderful Chinese people from their government. <laughs> and these are the happiest people. I mean, we've all got our problems. Don't get yeah. me wrong. I mean, not everyone is living in utopia here. But you know, if you're sitting down on a train next to a family of four and they're, they're eating, they'll hand you an egg. Yes. Or something like that. They bring you into their, their little group and say, look, this foreigner hasn't got anything. Here's, here's a bowl of noodles. So, oh, no, I'm OK. Thank you. No, no, they insist. Have, have this. What are you doing on the train? And they, this is their conversation starter. Yep. So I love that aspect of being in China and traveling in China. You, if I sit in a restaurant in the middle of... Um, in the middle of Hunan, no one has ever been there before who's a foreigner. You walk in, sit down, and you get these looks, but they're not hostile. They're curious. Yeah. And if you just smile at them, suddenly... Now what I want to do is I want to swift, switch track 
to talk about your travel within China on bicycle. I always wanted to do myself and it's on my bucket list to travel by bicycle on the Karakoram Highway from Pakistan to China, to Xinjiang in particular. Unfortunately, because of the security situation in both Pakistan and Xinjiang, I have not been able to do it. But I hope in not too distant future, I will be able to do that myself. But meanwhile, I like to live vicariously through you, through your journeys to China. <laughs> Tell us about your travels. Yeah. Well, first of all, Carl, I think uh, you would be surprised at the amount of freedom that you have in Xinjiang. And this is something we can talk more about. I don't know anything about Pakistan. Uh, I've never been there. I know a few people from there, but I don't know anything about the situation there right now. But uh, I can tell you that you can freely ride a bike around Xinjiang without any problems whatsoever. You're a foreigner with an American passport. Um, I assume that you can speak Chinese yes. uh, because I know you were born in Chongqing. So yes. you would have no trouble getting around. You'd have no trouble uh, traveling. What you would find is a very high degree of security, but you wouldn't find restrictions. And that's one of the things that surprised me most of all uh, when I got up there. But let's put that aside for now and start talking about the, the cycling, because we'll do the cycling first, then talk about the Xinjiang issues. Yes. Um, the, the cycling started about uh, seven, eight years ago. I think I was maybe nearly, nearly 10 years ago. I, I was in my early 50s and I looked in a mirror and saw my grandfather. Now, uh, I, I look like my mother's father and my mother, that side of the family. And that side of the family are kind of short and dumpy. We're pretty rotund. And I looked and saw a, a picture in the mirror of a guy who looked like my memory of my grandfather. He's been gone now for 30, 40 years. But when, when I remember him, he looked like what I look like now. And I remember when he was in his 50s, he had his first heart attack and he had three of them. And it wasn't a heart attack that eventually took him, but he was in his 50s and he had three heart attacks before he was 60. And my mother suffered from heart problems when she was in her 50s. And again, it wasn't a heart attack that took her. It was it was different stuff. But she she had angina and heart problems in her 50s. And I was in my early 50s looking at a picture of my grandfather and thinking to myself, I don't want to be like that. So I decided there and then I, I walked out of the, the bathroom and I said to my wife, um, I'm going to get a bike. And I said, I'm, I'm going to ride a bike to Xinjiang. No, I said, I'm going to ride a bike to Tibet. And she just looked at me as if I was crazy and said, you don't even have a bike, which was true. <laughs> I didn't at the time. And, and then I, I said, well, I'm going to go and get one. And so I did. I walked out that day and I bought a bike because I just decided I wanted to get a little bit fitter. And I was working in this school we talked about before, and it's about 12 kilometers away. So the next day I rode the bike to school. It nearly killed wow. me. Uh, and I continued for the week to ride the bike in and out of school, even though it wasn't easy. Uh, I did it every day. I got into school, had a shower, got changed, and it was okay. And I can still remember my very first 50 kilometer day thinking, what a hero I am. I've ridden 50 kilometers. Yeah. Now, uh, my longest my longest day now is 234 kilometers in one wow. day. But that's another story. Well, there was a good reason for that. It was called a following wind. But 
we did actually ride 234 kilometers in Gansu across the border and into Xinjiang in 2014. Wow. So what happened was I decided I was going to do this long bike ride in order to lose weight. And my wife and I were involved in a charity that we actually founded our own charity fundraiser. And we've been involved in that since 2005, still going, still, still doing stuff. And we've raised in, in the, what are we now, 15, 14 years, 15 years that we've been involved. We've raised uh, something like about 4 million RMB for disabled people mostly in Zhongshan. And um, it, it started off by mistake. You know, we didn't, get, didn't plan to get into this, but it, it, it happened and we did. But that's a different story. Uh, and I decided that if I was going to do this long bike ride, then I should give it a purpose. So I gave it a purpose that I was going to do it as a sponsored bike ride. I was going to get my friends to say, if, if you can ride across China, we'll give you X amount of dollars, X amount of RMB. And it got picked up. Uh, somebody told a friend of theirs who worked for the TV station. And before we knew it, we were becoming kind of local celebrities. Myself and an Irish friend, just two of us, he spoke not one word of Chinese. He couldn't even count to three in Chinese. And we set out on uh, the last day of February in 2014 at the border of Macau. And we rode over the next uh, 61 days to the border of Kazakhstan which is from the far southeast of China to the very far northwest of China. And that's um, 5,000 kilometers effectively. Uh, wow. I think it was 4,900 and something kilometers. And on the way, we, we, I mean, we had to cross all the rivers, the, the uh, Yangtze River, well, across the Pearl River first, that's, that's the nearest river to get into Guangzhou. Then we crossed the, the Yangtze or the Changjiang, uh, which got us from Hunan into Hubei. And then a little while later on, we were in Ningxia or Gansu, and I can't remember exactly, but somewhere around the border area, we crossed the Yellow River. And then we, we crossed three deserts, the Tengeli or the Tenga Desert. Uh, we were in the Gobi in Inner Mongolia for a little while, and we were in the Taklamakan in, um, uh, in Xinjiang. And that was 2014, and it was really a, a tough ride, but it was a lot of fun, and yeah. um, we raised we raised a lot of money, uh, and everything went well. We got back, and we we produced a photo a photography book, and we sold that for charity. So th things like that all started to take off, and then the next thing I knew, this was becoming a, a what are you going to do next type of thing. <laughs> uh, the following year, my wife actually walked from Zhongshan to Beijing. So she went one wow. better, I think, because I'd, I'd say that's a lot harder. She walked from, uh, she set off from Zhongshan again in February around Chinese New Year, and four and a half months later, in the middle of June, arrived in Beijing. Wow. Um, that's, a, that's a pretty big challenge. By herself? And so. Uh, no, she was with an American friend, actually, a, a Native American Indian um, from um, New Mexico. Wow. So her, her friend, her friend was had been working over here as a, a short-term contract as a tennis teacher, a tennis pro, and uh, just she she met me as a result of the bike ride. Somebody put her in touch with me, and she's had this dream of walking to Beijing. And she and my wife, uh, we sat down one day with some maps and she and my wife were chatting about it. And she said, my wife said, I think I'd like to do this too. So off she went a few months later. 
uh, you know, car carrying a backpack, which then got converted into a trailer. Yeah. Uh, we got a, a one of my friends uh, donated a, a trailer with a you know, proper, really good uh, hiking trailer, and um, wow. she got that, and, and off she went. Four and a half months later, she was in Beijing. So, so that's what we did in the first couple of years. And I had this kind of unfinished goal that uh, I'd ridden to Xinjiang, but I hadn't ridden back. And I wanted to ride back, but I knew it was going to take a couple of months. So yeah. we kind of put this idea together a, a year or so ago. And in September last year, my wife, uh, a friend of mine from Australia and myself, the three of us, two foreigners and a Chinese lady, flew to Xinjiang. We'd packed up our bikes here, had them delivered to the hotel where we were staying in Xinjiang, assembled the bikes, loaded them up and rode out of Urumuchi. This to the border was with last year. This was September last year. Yeah. Wow. Wow. And this is one of the reasons why I'm a little, um, I'm a little confused by the international rhetoric about the security and the, the concentration camps and all of this kind of thing, because there's actually no evidence that this is going on. I can't see any evidence that this is going on. I'm, I'm not disputing it's a very, very secure area. There's security checks everywhere it's a it's a pain in the neck to be honest uh, but it's very secure and the, the there was absolutely no problems with us we, we got on our bikes the hotel knew what we were doing the security in the hotel knew what we were doing and no one said you can't do that um, the, the police immigration knew who we were because you you have to record that you've arrived there your hotel will do this for you they knew who we were and what we were doing and nobody said you can't do this so on, on a Sunday morning, we just filmed ourselves uh, riding away from this hotel and heading kind of southeast uh, to leave the city. And we left the city and we went through a police checkpoint and it was very friendly. They were, we got photographs with them. Uh, they were really nice. And they said, we well, don't want to go that way because it's a really bad road with trucks. If you go this way, there's a lot less trucks. And that's the only time anyone said, don't go down there. And I'm fairly sure that his reasoning was it's an easier road for us if we go that road. Uh, it will take us to the same destination, but that one's a better road for cyclists than this one. He wasn't telling us you can't go down there. He was saying, I don't suggest you do. And when we left that checkpoint, we did a U-turn and took his advice. But if we'd just gone down the road that he said, I don't suggest you go down there, I'm quite sure no one would have stopped us. So that's the only time in the entire time that we were riding in Xinjiang that any police officer said, don't go that way. And it was advisory rather than a requirement. We camped in the desert a couple of times, more than a couple of times. The first night we had to camp because we didn't have, uh, we didn't have the distance to get to the next town. The distances between towns out there is, is quite, quite large. Yeah. And we'd lost an hour or an hour and a half at the first checkpoint. Uh, because they didn't know who we were, what we were doing. They needed to manually check us through uh, with the ID, the Chinese ID. You just wipe your ID, get facial recognition and walk through. With us, it was, let's stop here. But they brought us fruit and their drinks and they topped up our water bottles for us. They were really friendly while they did the paperwork and then let us go. So off we went down uh, that track. But we were already late and we were planning to get about 100 kilometers that day to the next town, which is called Dabachan. We didn't quite make it to Dabachan, so we stopped outside and we camped. Nobody stopped us. We've got photographs of camping there. 
And the next morning when we got up, we headed through. We stopped for lunch in Dabachan. We got stopped by the security going in. They said, what are you doing? Where were you last night? And we said, we camped in the, okay, no problem. So we were quite free to do that. Nobody ever said to us, let's have a look at the camera, the, the cameras you've got and the pictures you've taken. Nobody asked that at all at any stage. And we probably came into contact with police officers every single day, at least two or three times. So the security is quite intense. And there's a damn good reason for that, because they had lots and lots of terrorism attacks a few years ago. The security is intense, but the freedom is still there, despite the fact that your freedom is, I wouldn't say limited or restricted, it's just slowed down. So it, it's like you go through these bottlenecks of security. If you are an undocumented traveler in Xinjiang, you will get nowhere. If you are a documented traveler in Xinjiang, you will get anywhere you want to go, I'm sure. So you could probably do your dream journey on the Karakaram Highway. I would suggest you start probably in, in Turpan or in um, Urumuchi. And I would also suggest very strongly that you research that journey because there's a lot of desert there, a lot, yes. and you need to carry a hell of a lot of water. Yes. Uh, that's the biggest problem. Yeah, we went through some uh, fairly scary times. There was, you, you, when you're on a bike, you need your watering holes to be 100 kilometers apart or less. Yes. And in the desert, they're not. There's one area we, when we left uh, one town, rode 80 kilometers and found a service station with a, a restaurant next to it. And we stayed there and we, we actually slept in a shed at the side of the restaurant and had breakfast there and then left and then we had 160 kilometers to the next one and we camped under the road in a culvert under a bridge uh, very very strong wind very uncomfortable night lots of sand whipping around us um, and we decided that if we ever did it again we'd actually put up our tents under the culvert this time we didn't we just slept on our, on our mattresses on the floor we have um, roll up mattresses like a yoga mat and we just slept on them on the floor and it wasn't a very comfortable night but again we got into the town the next day we got into turpan and nobody questioned us where were you last night or the night before nobody asked to see our photographs so i'm, I'm a little bit confused by all this reporting that says that nobody can travel there you can i'm confused by reporting that says you're not allowed to take photographs you can I'm confused by reports that say the, the Uyghur language is being destroyed because it's not. It's everywhere. People are speaking it. You can read it on every street sign. Even the road signs, the government road signs, are dual language. They're not Pinyin and Chinese. They're Chinese and Turkic. So it's like an Arabic language. And you can see that this is their local language. It is the official language of Xinjiang. And it's not being destroyed. So I'm very confused when people call me a liar. And I've had this, I've been trolled on, uh, on Twitter many, many times by people saying, why are you telling lies supporting the CP, CCP, as they call it, which is actually the CPC. And I'm not supporting the CPC. I'm not supporting a restriction on human rights. I'm just saying it's not what you think it is. And that's the truth of the matter. It is not what people are reporting. There is no genocide. There is no forced labor. There are no concentration camps that are visible. And I'm getting people telling me that they're looking at 
the ASPI in Australia, I've been chatting with the guy who interprets and analyzes their, their satellite data. And he's calling me a liar because he says there are concentration camps. And I'm saying, have you been there and had a look? He's looking from three miles up and analyzing pictures. There are definitely uh, military installations. There are definitely working stations out there because there's gas and there's oil in that area, lots of it. There's mineral resources, so there are obviously some mines which would be secure, military installations which would be secure. And I'm not disputing that there are prisons because there would be prisons. I'm not disputing that there are prisoner transfers because, of course, there would be prisoner transfers. What I am disputing is that it is, is a systemic or a systematic attempt to erode the Uyghur population because, to me, having been there just a few months ago, that's not what I saw. So I think that's what the world needs to hear, and that's probably the most political I've ever been in my life. I'm not a political observer, I'm not a trained journalist, but I'm not an idiot either, and what I'm seeing doesn't match the narrative of what we call mainstream media. The narrative is completely different to the truth, or the I, truth I as I see it. I remember you actually wrote a Medium article um, about mm -hmm. your experience, and I, I remember you started by, uh, you had a clickbait title. Can you remind us <laughs> yes. of what the title was? <laughs> And my clickbait, and I admitted it was a clickbait title in the first paragraph. Um, I said, "How did I?" My title was, "How did I become such a world-renowned expert on Xinjiang?" <laughs> and then I and then I opened the paragraph, which said, "In fact, I'm not." Uh, but yeah, it was, it was definitely a clickbait title. But the fact is, it, I've, I've got, uh, I think I've got four thousand, very close to four thousand followers on Twitter now. All of those followers are following me, not because I'm a cyclist. I would say that most of those followers are following me because I'm telling what I see is the truth as they see it. They believe what I'm saying. And that's 4,000 people. Now, I do get attacks all the time. And I also have, and I'll be very fair here, I've had some very reasonable conversations with um, displaced Uyghurs. Some of them, and I really feel for those people. I, I had one young lady, I, I assume she was a long, young lady because she said she can't see her mother and she left as a student. Now, I don't know if she's a young lady or not now, but she hasn't spoken to her mother in three years. That makes, that breaks my heart. But when I asked her, why is it that you didn't come back to China when you finished your studies? She said, because I had been involved with the East Turkestan, East Turkestan movement. And if I come back to China, they'll put me in prison. And so well, what made you get involved with the East Turkestan movement? And she said, well, I was influenced when I came to this country. She wouldn't tell me which country it was. When I came to this country, I was influenced by them. And I got involved in some of their administration, helping them out. And then I was talking to my mother one day and she said, please don't call me again. And that breaks my heart. But it, the fact is, whether you like it or not, China has laws about separation. China has laws about dissidents. China has laws about uh, uh, sedition. And these are the Chinese national security laws. You, you don't have the same freedom of speech that you do in, say, America or Australia. That freedom of speech allows you to say whatever the hell you like. 
and get away with it. But it doesn't in China. So if you are a student and you live in Xinjiang and you decide to go to, for example, Australia to study, then don't get involved in East Turkestan. Because if you do, you know you're going to have trouble. And some of these people are now really, really angry at people like me for saying, I don't see there, there's a problem there. I mean, literally, there are millions of Uyghurs. I think 11 million is the population at the last count, 11 or 12 million Uyghurs. Yeah. And again, th this is an increased number from four or five million 40 years ago. Yep. There are thousands, and I mean literally thousands of mosques, and they're very busy. You see people going in and out of the mosques all the time. Now, I haven't been into a Xinjiang mosque. When I went to Xinjiang, I didn't go there with a view to exposing Xinjiang to the world. I went there to ride a bike. So my pictures are about my bike riding. And it was only when I started Twittering about this or tweeting this that people started asking me questions. And suddenly I became a spokesperson because I am an observer of things. I have seen some stuff and it's different to what other people are reporting. And now when I get asked by anyone in America, Australia, wherever they are um, about Xinjiang, my first question to them is, have you been there or when were you last there? Because what you're telling me is not what I saw when I was there in September last year. And I was in Xinjiang only for about three weeks because that's how long it takes to cycle to the border. And I'm sure that there are foreigners who have been there much longer than me foreigners who have lived there, there must be foreigners living there because there's a lot of language centers and those people would have a different experience. I'm not saying that what people are reporting is wrong. What I'm saying is it doesn't look right. And the best way to find out if it is or not is go there and look for yourself. Yes. Because I yes. can't I like, see what's going on. I like to say that you are, in fact, uh, a, a Xinjiang, you are more of a Xinjiang expert to 90% of the so-called China expert or Xinjiang expert on, on Twitter, because most of the people who have very strong opinions on Twitter, they have you know, never traveled to China, let alone Xinjiang. And, mm. and you have mm. actually been there and you've been there very recently. And that you know, based on what you, you know, your eyewitness account is a lot more credible than, you know, somebody quoting, uh, uh, somebody quoting a researcher uh, from the victim of communism, right? I'm talking about Adrian Zenz. Adrian who Zenz, is like yes. the go to, yeah. Who is uh, like let the go to you, Go ahead. Three months ago, Carl, I had never heard of Adrian Zenz. I didn't know who this guy was. And now, because of my exposure about Xinjiang, three months ago, remembering I came back from this bike ride in, in October last year. We, we rode out at the first day of, in fact, I think it was the last day of August, uh, September and October, we were riding our bikes and we got home two months after we started. And I didn't start tweeting this until uh, March of this year. Yeah. And the reason for that is because I was locked down and bored. I opened up this thing. I have this Twitter account that I haven't used for five years. And I thought, I know what I'll do. I'll put some of my writing pictures on Twitter. Next thing I know, I'm being asked thousands of questions and, and I'm being promoted on Twitter. And when I started this back in March, I had two followers that were my brothers and <laughs> one friend in Ireland who said, I'll follow you because he was on Twitter too. 
And so three three followers, and now I have 4,000. So something has happened here which is appealing to some people. Um, and since this, I've actually been published in China Daily. I've been published on Toutiao, which is an online platform. I, I got, uh, I wrote, I wrote an article for Toutiao, and uh, I got uh, sixteen thousand likes and four thousand eight hundred comments. Wow. And was, my wife and I went through these comments. Her Chinese is better than mine, of course. And she's reading these comments to me, and every single comment that we saw was positive. And we didn't read 4,800 comments, but every single comment we looked at was a positive comment. And Totiao are now asking me to write more for them. So obviously I'm appealing to the Chinese nature. And yes. that was against the narrative of the Western mainstream media. Yes. You call me now a Wu Mao or a bot, a CCP bot, this yeah. kind of stuff. Uh, so four months ago, I'd never heard of Adrian Zenz. I didn't know who this guy was. But because of this, people are sending me things. And I've looked at this Adrian Zenz, and I went online to try and find more about him. And the only thing I can find about him is that he's a religious zealot. There's no doubt. And I have no problem with him being a religious zealot. Anyone's allowed to believe what they want to believe. I have no problem yeah. with that. I'm not. Yeah. But that doesn't stop me from liking people who are. I, I mean, my parents are both, were both very, very strong Catholics. Uh, I'm not, but it doesn't stop me or have, it doesn't cause me to have any conflict with my parents. It's, it's their choice. Sure. Uh, so this guy, not only is a religious zealot, he's also, he also believes that women belong like barefoot and pregnant in the kitchen. They, yes. they, there is no gender equality, according yes. to the writings that I've seen of his. He believes that children should be spanked. And in fact... I'm not averse to that concept of spanking a child, but it depends on what you're doing and why you're doing it. You know, if you're doing it as a punishment, if you're doing it to save the child's life, you know, the kid runs out on the road, you grab the kid, and it's a natural thing to give the kid a little smack and say, don't ever do that again. You're trying to teach them a lesson. Yeah. I'm not averse to a little bit of that, but when it comes to the rod and stuff like that, no, no way. And so, you know, he's he's a religious zealot with, or uh, he also has some homosexual views. Uh, he doesn't believe that they're going to enter the kingdom of heaven. Uh, yeah. he, he's, he's actually a little bit anti-Muslim as well. His religion thing is anti-Muslim. So it, I'm a little confused as to why he's supporting the Uyghur. But he's very anti-China. And again, yeah. I don't have a big problem with that if you have a reason. Now, it yeah. seems to me, and I, I don't know if I'm 100% right on this because... I haven't academically researched this. All I've done is I've looked online and I've read a few things, uh, yeah. probably more than the average person has read, but I yeah. haven't academically researched this. But it seems to me that almost every single report, including what's happened in the Senate House, the Congress House, in American government, what's happening in the UK, all of these reports all go back to one point where it starts. He's created a lot of, no, he's not created, he's downloaded a lot of data, he's interpreted yeah. the data, he's yeah. created a report based on that data, and organizations like the CIA and other organizations have taken that data and used it in support of what they want to do, and now the United Nations and the EU and the UK are using this, now it's credible because it's come from the American government, 
Yeah. So it seems to me, and one of the things I say to people who I've had a few uh, analysts, the ex-Navy, ex-military people working for these alphabet soup things, and, and even ASPI, and I say to them, you're an analyst, you're an intelligent person, please go back to the very source, track this back to the source, investigate the source, and then come back and argue with me that you believe that it's correct, because the source is in almost every, no, not almost, every single case that I've found, that doesn't mean it's every case, every case that I have found, the source of the information is Adrian Zenz. Yeah. The report could be written by ASPI in Australia, or it could be written by the U.S. Marine Corps, the U.S. Intelligence Service. It doesn't matter. But they're getting their source information from a report by Adrian Zenz. Now, Adrian Zenz is downloading in Chinese, interpreting in German, and reporting in English. Yes. Is it possible that there could be some mistakes in his interpretation? Because people are not reading the Chinese data. Now, when they say that Xinjiang has bought you know, 10 million meters or 10 million kilometers of barbed wire, I'm sure they have, because every school, every government office, every service station, they're all surrounded by barbed wire. When they're building all of these factories, I'm sure they are building all these factories, but it is poverty alleviation. It's an area which has been living in the medieval age since the medieval age. Until recently in Kashgar, half the houses in Kashgar didn't have toilets or running water. So they've bulldozed those houses and they've built apartments. They've bulldozed some mosques and they've built new mosques. They've bulldozed shitty little slum areas and they've built new areas. That's what's going on. That's why this building material, that's why this security material is being moved to Xinjiang. They're, they're creating schools which, in my opinion, free up the mother to go to work. If, they, if you build a kindergarten, then the mother has the opportunity to go to work. And they're building a factory, so the mother has somewhere to go to work. I see that as poverty alleviation. Adrian Zenz's report sees that as enforced labor. And in the case of the kid, the school is taking the kid and eroding its Uyghur culture. Well, that doesn't ring true to me because I'm a teacher in Guangdong or was a teacher in Guangdong. Every school in Guangdong is full of Cantonese-speaking kids. They don't speak Cantonese in school. They're not allowed. So are they eroding Cantonese culture? Because when I switch on my TV, all I hear is Cantonese. They're not trying to erode it. When I was in Xinjiang in my hotel room, I switch on the television. It's local language. When I open a book, it's local language. When I open a restaurant menu, it's local language. And I walk into the street and look at the street signs. It's local language. No one is trying to kill their local language. So if that's not true, then are they really harvesting their organs? I don't think so. Are they really shaving their hair and making hair products to sell to Americans? I don't think that's true. Are they really enforcing labor? I don't think that's true. Are they poverty alleviation programs which could be interpreted differently? But... If you go and have a look, you can see what they are. And the World Bank did go and have a look. The company that made the hair products that are currently impounded in New York was actually funded by the World Bank who visited that factory. 
Now, if the World Bank visited that factory, surely they saw some uh, human rights issues, but there aren't any. I remember a few years ago when I think it was the BBC created a, a Foxconn report showing people sleeping at their desks in China because they're so exhausted. Well, honestly, that's the biggest load of BS I've ever seen because every school kid sleeps at their desk. Every employee has a two and a half hour lunch break. They eat their thing and then they go and have a sleep. This is perfectly normal operating procedure in every school, every factory and every office I've ever been to in China. And BBC reported this as slave labor in Foxconn. And then they talked about these, the uh, suicide rate in Foxconn. Well, Foxconn has more employees than the city of Birmingham in the UK. Birmingham has a lot of suicides. Foxconn had a lot less than Birmingham. Foxconn probably had a lot less than London, which has twice as many people. But when you look at the suicide rates in a lot of places, these guys are not suiciding because they're slave labor. They're suiciding because they were going to suicide anyway and didn't get proper care and proper treatment because it wasn't recognized. Uh, and really, the Foxconn example is one other example of how people misinterpret because they don't understand the culture of China. And it's very easy to misinterpret if you can actually say that barbed wire fence and factories are being built. Fine. You can interpret that as enforced labor or you can interpret that as poverty alleviation in a region that has security concerns. The chief of the United Nations counter-terrorism organization. I think his name is Voronkov, something like that. He's a Russian guy, Vladimir Voronkov. I don't know how to pronounce that. He visited China. He visited Xinjiang. He reported back to the United Nations that their counter-terrorism measures were excellent. But that report has been put to one side because it legitimizes the enforced labor and the human rights issues that nobody has been here to check on. So when the World Bank looks at it and the United Nations counterterrorism look at it and I look at it and report something, how is it that somebody who's never been to Xinjiang but has read a report about it can call me a liar? And that's what I'm, I'm concerned about. And that's why I'd like people to look at rather than believe me. Don't believe me. I don't care if you believe me or not. Go and have a look for yourself. The United Nations will not send their human rights organization to look at. Why? Because America doesn't want them to. Why is that? There's a lot deeper political problems going on in the world than, than I can answer, but I believe that's something to do with uh, whoever is writing these reports is being paid for by people who have a desire not to be peaceful. Well, I mean, for it's very obvious in case of Aspie, uh, which is this Australian think tank that was responsible for majority of the anti-China reports in Australian media right now, and an Aspie, uh, which is which is supposedly an Australian think tank, but if you look at their funding page, um, you know, you can see this on their website. Their sponsors are U.S. weapon manufacturers like Lockheed Martin and, you know, U.S. State Department. You know, it's... Well, the, it's you're right. There's one thing that's, that probably, I don't know if any Australian government will ever listen to your podcast, but there's one thing they should look very, very carefully at, 
ASPE was formed uh, back in the early 2000s by the Australian government in order to find out what's going on in the world and assess some threats. Nothing wrong with that. That's what every government should be doing. The responsible government should do that. But then during the course of the last 15 years, 18 years or so, they've changed the funding method. And now they don't fund them directly, but they pay them for consultancy fees. And so ASPE was told to go out and find your own uh, sources of revenue. Well, they've done that and they've done it very, very effectively. So they've found sources of revenue. And here's the thing that the Australian government should look at. One of their sources of revenue is Lockheed Martin. Lockheed Martin has just won an $800 million contract to sell some kind of rocket missile to the Australian government. Now, Lockheed Martin sold this on the advice of Aspie. Aspie got paid to give advice to the government. The government then paid Lockheed Martin 800 million or are paying 800 million. And I'm sure Aspie are going to get a bonus for that sale. So we have what I did, what I call a self-licking ice cream here. We've got a, a central government uh, paying somebody to give them advice. And the advice is coming from a paid consultancy so that the government can pay them more money to buy the product <laughs> that is being advised. It really, to me, it just sounds so crazy that no one has picked up on this. And I believe that somebody did in the Australian Senate just a few days ago. And I can't believe that this is not mainstream front page headlines all over Australia. Why are we paying a government, a government supported think tank to give us advice about what rockets and missiles to buy? only to find that the rockets and missiles we buy are their funders too. What the hell is going on? <laughs> and and, and on top of that, the stated reason for Australia's uh, purchase of anti-ship uh, missiles is, is to counter the, the, the China threat. Uh, this is double ironic because Australia's biggest customer, biggest export mm. market is China. And, you know, yeah. most of the Australian shipping goes to China. I remember there was a... A, a, a Australian comedy show on ABC called Utopia. Uh, mm -hmm. They they had a they had a, a parody skit where uh, you know they have these all, all Australian bigwigs in government sitting down and say, okay, let, let, let's can we talk about um, what is our top concern? You know, China, mm -hmm. right? So what 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 should we um, you know what should we be spending on? We we need to spend on a huge sum. We need to spend a huge sum of money to defend um, our shipping line, shipping lanes to China from Against China, China. yeah. <laughs> Again, it, it's the self-licking ice cream, yeah. It, it really, it beggars belief that you've got organizations that are actually thinking like this. Uh, and I, I don't think that was so close to parody. That seemed to be so close to the reality of it. Uh, Literally, I'm an Australian citizen. I love Australia. I love the people. I love the country. I love everything about Australia. And I'm completely confused by the fact that they've done this step against China. They obviously believe that their future lies with America. Yeah. And the European Union are doing kind of the opposite. Germany and France are saying, no, we're not going to bow down to that. We have our reasons not to. France are just saying, well, they're not going to ban Huawei, for example. That was in today's news or yeah. yesterday's news. Uh, and, and Germany is saying, well, we're not really interested in, in supporting America on, on this particular thing. But you've got America and 
America and Britain sending aircraft carriers 4,000 miles across the ocean into an area called the South China Sea <laughs> to protect what? They're protecting at the moment, it looks like, their own defense bases that are based in the South China Sea. And then you've got to think to yourself, well, when was China aggressive? And then I mean, this, I, again, I'm 62 again. years old. China has not been involved in a proper war in my lifetime. They were involved in Korea. Yes, agreed. They were involved in Vietnam, but only peripherally. They had a border dispute with Vietnam. I think it was 79, which you know they, they invaded Vietnam for sure. They invaded Vietnam, but then they pulled straight back once they once they've proven their point and spent as much money as Deng Xiaoping allowed them to spend. They they pulled back and they sorted out their border dispute. And now they're friends again. Um, you could argue that Tibet was an invasion. I could argue that it wasn't. Uh, I'm not going to get into the politics of, of, of what Tibet is or isn't. But you could argue that was an invasion. But when was it? It was 1951. That's the last time. In the 1950s, China had an army that it sent into other countries. But it was only countries that neighbored China. They haven't sent an army anywhere else. So what's the big threat? Why are we so afraid of China? I don't really understand that. The stated reason, uh, at least in the in the Western media, uh, the, the, the reason U.S. must send in freedom, uh, uh, nav freedom of navigation patrol in South China Sea, and the reason uh, U.K. must send uh, the, its own, uh, its only, I believe, only aircraft carriers to South China Sea is to protect yeah. international shipping. What they don't tell you is more than 80% of the international shipping in South China Sea goes to it's and Chinese. from China. So, yes, so, exactly. so once yeah. again, we're talking about protecting shippings to China from China. And from I mean, China. Yeah. It's yes. totally ridiculous. I, on top of that, the, the uh, I, I made a joke. I made a snark tweet on uh, on 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 Twitter when they reported that the UK is going to send the uh, the the aircraft carrier Elizabeth into South China Sea. I'm like, with what? With F-35s or no planes? Because you know, well, it has helicopters on board. Exactly. I, I, it has like I saw a picture that it has helicopters. F-35 is is a proven piece of crap technology that's that's really like more harmful to the pilots than anyone else. And then and then it's not even ready to be deployed on the on the UK aircraft carrier. So mm. what UK is just going to send a sitting dock like like an aircraft carrier without aircraft to South China Sea to do what? I mean, a lot of this is just posturing. It's just it's just like I UK is doing what, what Australian is. Yeah, what UK is doing, what Australian government is doing, which is basically to show solidarity with United States. You know, United States was is trying to trying to kind of like gather the five I countries. You know, UK, US, Canada, Australia, uh, New Zealand to kind of bring them into the US fold. You know, to, into this anti-China crusade. But but for what? I mean, US. You, for the longest time, U.S. and China both profited from cooperation and from trade, and I think like trade it benefits everybody. But but now yes. like there are some crazy people in U.S. They they believe in this 
crazy decoupling theory. They think like the U.S. and Chinese economy is too intertwined that it creates complications for future confrontation because, you know, then 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 we can't really have a real war with China because a trade war, even a trade war with China would hurt U.S. interests. So what they try to advocate is a decoupling of U.S. economy from the from the Chinese economy, which to me sounds totally insane. I mean, like, why why would you have want to have a future confrontation? I thought the whole goal is like, why can't everybody just get along and live peacefully? <laughs> but yeah, you know, that's it me. It seems we're reaching the end of globalism. Yes. Um, what, what worries me most of all about the South China Sea thing is, is not that it's World War Three just about to start. It's that there could be an accident Yes. And an accident could start this. You know, it, if you've got British or American or Australian ships sailing so close to Chinese ships, it just takes one twitch of the finger of, of a captain who is either inexperienced or maybe just not sure of what he's doing or sure of his parameters. And it doesn't matter which country starts it or does it. Yes. We've got a whole new Gulf of Tonkin incident, which, yes. again, we've got a weapons of mass destruction incident. You think about all the reasons why countries have gone to war, and it turns out that they're not really very valid reasons at all. And this would be the same thing. I'd hate to see a simple accident start something which escalates because yes. nobody's going to win that. Not even no. the weapons manufacturers, because yes. by the time the weapons manufacturers have counted their money, they'll be lost in a nuclear blitz. So, you know, it's just a it's just a waste of a thought process to even think about it. But the fact is that you, the, you know, if, if one guy decides he's going to press a nuclear bomb, then the rest of the world is done. I'm, it really I'm, is quite frightening. I'm 100 percent with you because I I don't think even the U.S. Uh, Pentagon to is serious about having a real war with China because they, they 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 knew that that's that's can very easily escalate into a nuclear uh, thermonuclear exchange you know what what right now what all these weapon manufacturing and na national security establishment wants to do is they want to stoke up the tension to keep on you know to keep on funding funneling trillion dollars defense money into their own pocket i think that's the real goal here but as you say this kind of ratcheting up tension could easily lead up to a unforeseen accident that that and that's, that's how it's going to start or it's going to start from something which wasn't real and we've had those kind of wars started before. I, I, I don't. I just don't understand it. Uh, I made a comment the other day uh, about um, the Vietnam War and the Korean War. And I, I, honestly, if we go back in history, I'm not a geopolitical thinker at all. I'm, I'm not trained in journalism. I'm not trained in geopolitics or even politics. I have a master's degree, but it's in cultural exchange, uh, so it's not very helpful for this. But if you talk about the Vietnam War and, and what was that actually about? If nobody, no American has been able to tell them the stop of stopping the spread of communism. Okay, so we need to stop the spread of communism into Vietnam. Okay, and now I know about the domino effect. I understand that if Vietnam fell, then perhaps something else will fall and then something else after that. But the bottom line is communism, as it's perceived in its evil form, doesn't work very well. Communism, as it's perceived in its Marxism form, works very, very well indeed, only with collective cultures. The culture of China is that people work well in groups. 
that's that's the national psyche. That's the culture of Chinese people. They work well in groups. If you're in business and you have a a team of Chinese people, they'll work better than a team of individual Chinese people. If you're praising a Chinese person, you're embarrassing that person. But if you're praising the team that they're in, everybody gets it, and the person who did all the work gets the face. So I don't think people really realize this. That once you get out of those collective cultural places, then communism isn't going to work anyway.、And、Stopping the spread of communism. What what they don't realize is also a lot of these、uh, revolution that happened in in East Asia in the in the last in the twentieth century. A lot of them are actually national liberal. Liberation struggles, you know, like the Vietnam was trying to gain its its independence, and and you know, it's just that that they decided to adopt communism because that's that what they thought that's what the, will help them achieve their their national independence, and and same with Korea, China. Well, it, and, it and, would do because they're they're communal people. They live in a communal environment. If if you study any of the great psychologists,、uh, Alfonso Trompenas,、um, Gerd Hofstede, these people, they have all said the same thing about Southeast Asia, particularly Asian cultures. They are communal. They work better as a team. Communism works for those people. It doesn't work for the the. People in America who are individuals—they're individualistic. They have a much higher scale of individualism than the spread of communism is going to stop as soon as you reach the end of communal people. And then, what will happen to the spread of communism? Exactly what's happened in China: communism changes form. We're no longer a, a communist country, but we are. But we're communist. I say we because I'm in China, not because I'm Chinese. We're a country that. That works in communal ways. People support each other in the community, and the community that is rich supports the poorer community. The poorer cities support the poor. The, the richer cities support the poorer cities. The richer provinces support the poorer provinces. That's what communism is all about, as far as I'm concerned. I've never read Marx. I've never read Lenin. I, I'm not an ism person. I can just see what I observe. That 93% is a fact. 93% of the people in China actually like China. They like、yes. the government. They like what's going on. And Harvard just spent 13 years finding that out. There's Gallup polls. There's all <laughs> kinds of different polls to say that China likes its government. So I don't understand why people like Pompeo say we need to rescue the Chinese people who I love from the government who who they hate. Well, they don't. You got that wrong. Pompeo probably should focus、uh, more、uh, closer, focus his attention closer at home. I mean, there's some serious problem in U.S. right now that needs needs facing, including the the the, the rampaging pandemic. I mean, like right now, what what's happening in U.S. is that U.S. government is so inept in handling the COVID nineteen crisis that now they're just trying to shift the blame to China. It's a lot easier. You know, in U.S., it's always easier to blame the foreigners, right? You know, whether it's that's、uh, part it's of like, their individualism, isn't it? That's that's the opposite of communism. It's the individualism. Pompeo's got a job,、uh, and and let's be frank about this. Pompeo's job as Secretary of Defense has not, sorry, not Secretary of State, has nothing at all to do with what happens inside of his own country. His job is to manage all the diplomats around the world and handle all the diplomatic issues around the world. So he's really what the English call the foreign secretary. 
He's the guy who looks after the foreign interests. So he doesn't really have anything to do with the pandemic and stuff like that, although he could express support. It's not his job to do that. His job is to manage the, the embassies. He's the world's number one diplomat, but he's the most un undiplomatic diplomat in the world. <laughs> a good diplomat, uh, I've always said this, a good diplomat tells you to go to hell in such a way you enjoy the journey. That's the art of diplomacy. Pompeo is not that at all, but he's got this job as being the world's leading diplomat. I'm sure diplomats who work for him must be cringing every well, time he opens his mouth. Oh my God, I've got to, I've got to handle this issue. But, uh, because but US, the diplomats, US, are, you know, the all foreign policies, domestic policy, like uh, like like U.S. most. I lived in U.S. for 30 years, so I can say this. You know, most most Americans they're they're rather parochial. They're 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 more concerned about what's happening inside United States, and and most people in U.S. can't even find China on a map. I mean, let alone. I, yeah, I've, I've seen those videos. They're quite yeah. funny. <laughs> Can you show us where Australia is? Oh, no, I don't know where that yeah. is. Can, oh, what language do they speak in Australia? German, uh, stuff like that. Yeah, I know what you mean. And, and I'm sure I'm quite convinced that that's not all Americans and it's not even a high proportion. I'm quite convinced that most most Americans are intelligent people. But I do agree with what you say, that they are very parochial. They're more concerned about with what happens at home than what happens yes. overseas, which is why I'm so confused about why America is involved in Afghanistan, why it's involved in Iraq, why it's involved in Yemen, why it's involved in Syria. If most Americans don't care about those things, why are America so keen on being the world's policing service? And now we know from videos that we're seeing in places like Chicago and Portland and places like that, their police are not very nice people. Now, I am a former police officer. You won't often hear me criticize police. I spent 10 years as a police officer. I was on the front lines in Brixton riots in London, Lewisham riots. I was on a, 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 a very, very nasty industrial dispute in the 1970s called Grunwick's. And I was there through the Thatcher years. I can tell you, being a police officer, I've been on the front line of those riots. I've had firebombs, petrol bombs, rocks thrown at me. We didn't have guns and nobody got shot, but we did have serious injuries on both sides. And I can tell you, you won't often hear me criticize police, but what I'm seeing happening in America is worthy of criticism. Now, I'm sure that there are tens of thousands of damn good police officers in America, but we're not seeing them. What we're seeing is this kind of uh, the, the Portland issue at the moment where you've got federal officers just running around, beating up people, catching them, putting them in vans and driving away. God knows what's going on there. That's third world country stuff. And that's really, if we go back to where, where you started this discussion, that's what America should be looking into, yes. not what's happening in China. And yes. why is Xinjiang a concern to them? I understand the human rights issue. So go and have a look. Go and have a look and then get it over with. But let's be honest. Nobody wants the truth. They want the story. The reason why they want the story yeah is debatable, but they don't. If they wanted the truth, they would just send the UN Human Rights Watch team, and they're not called Human Rights Watch, that's another organization. They'd send the UN Human Rights Department to have a look. Simple as that. Yeah. But they won't. They're not going I, to, because they and, don't want to. They don't the, want the truth. 
And for the people you know who are listening to this, and for the other 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 Twitter commentators, there is no restriction on foreigners going to Xinjiang right now. You, it's it's a different from Tibet. Tibet, you will actually like foreigners actually required to register with a, like a tour group to to go to yes. Tibet. Whereas yeah. Xinjiang is just like every other part of China. You know, if you have a visa to China, you can go to Xinjiang. You know, like the your visa your visa for China does allow you to go into uh, into Xinjiang, and it does allow you to travel anywhere in Xinjiang. When we went the went through there in two thousand and fourteen. Uh, we traveled through to the border at a place called Korgash, and that's the border of Kazakhstan. Now, we needed to get special permission to go in there, and it was all done through networks. Someone we knew contacted someone they knew who contacted someone they knew who contacted the wife of the senior police officer of Urumuchi, who contacted the senior police officer in Korgash, and we were allowed in. And the, the fee for that was we took the policeman to dinner. That was it. Uh, there, there was no uh, the red packet thing. There was no under the table. Uh, we, we, we as a group of foreigners, there was myself and my bike riding partner. And at that stage, my wife and his wife had joined us. They flew up to Urumuchi and they joined us for the last uh, few hundred kilometers to the border. And it was it was through them that we got this uh, link into the into their government. And then we were allowed to go. We actually went to the border and actually crossed the Chinese border into the no man's land so we could take a photograph of the G312 road at its very final milepost, milestone. And we've got the photograph of us standing at the border. There's a blue fence and behind us is Kazakhstan. We are standing in China. Uh, so as simple as that. We we were literally, if I put my, if I climbed over that fence, I would have been probably shot. I don't know, but we <laughs> certainly would not have, have been allowed. Do you still have that photo? Yeah, yeah, I can okay. send you a copy of that. We're finished yeah, talking. Yeah, please. I would like to post that on the Patreon, uh, my Patreon site, too, for our for my subscribers to see and to to okay. use it as uh, maybe for the. For the for this episode, uh, I mean, it's it's been a fascinating uh, uh, conversation with you, Jerry, and uh, and I I really love I would love to invite you back to to just to hear about your biking adventure. Yeah, just to I'm, talk about the biking, not the politics. Yes. Sure, yes. we can do that. Yeah. What? Uh, just curious before you go, what? Um, like, what road did you guys ride on? Did you ride on the freeways? I mean, like. What kind of road did you guys ride on when you were bicycling across China? Okay, you can't, legally you can't ride on the freeway. So basically if there's a toll road, you can't go on it. If it's not a toll road, you can. So there's lots of places where you can be on a freeway, which is not a toll road. But generally speaking, we, we stick to what, as a, as a British guy, I call the B roads. You're not on the motorways, not on the freeways, you're on, on the main roads between cities that used to exist before they built the freeways and the uh, highways. Uh, and there's a lot of them. But occasionally you have a little problem. We've got a lot of stories about this. As you get out into places like Gansu, Ningxia, the, the roads in the past, certainly in 2014, before poverty alleviation, sometimes you'd find you're on a road and suddenly the road turns into dirt and suddenly the dirt turns into uh, sand and then there's no yeah. more road, it's gone. Where the hell are we here? The, the, what's going on here? 
and a couple of times we had to literally climb up an embankment, take everything off the bikes, lift the bikes over the fence, put everything over the fence, restock the bikes, and then ride along the freeway wow. until the next toll road, and then come down off the toll road and just wave at the guy, hi, thanks very much, bye-bye. <laughs> and they come out and they look at us with a very strange look. But, you know, we, we talked to a couple of people about this in that area, and they said, oh, don't worry about it. They know that the road is bad, so they expect yeah. to see bikes. Uh, motorbikes are not allowed on, but they're always up there. Uh, so when you get out into those very remote areas, it is possible. But generally speaking, you're, you're in the scenic part of China. I mean, that's one of the great things. Some of the, the most beautiful scenery throughout China is, is what you get to see. You can go on my Twitter feed and see some of my pictures of China. And if you want, if you have a specific request of, of a place, just let me know and I'll find a picture of it. Uh, so effectively, I've done three bike rides now. Uh, the Harbin to Jongsan bike ride from the north. Harbin is the ice city way up near the Russian border, not far from Vladivostok. That that city there, we rode from there, two of us rode from there to Jongsan. That was 42 days. Uh, rode from Jongsan to Urumqi was 57 days from Jongsan wow. to Urumqi, but it was 61 days from Macau to Kazakhstan. Um, the road from when we flew to Urumqi and rode back was another exactly 57 days, which was a, a, a bit of a coincidence. But we did cheat a little bit. We had one day where we we were in the mountains in Hunan and we had some bike problems and we had to get to Guangdong mm -hmm. and we actually rented a, a minivan to just take us a, a couple of hundred kilometers. Mm -hmm. So we probably saved ourselves two days riding by doing that because we needed to get the bike sorted out. Yeah. Um, and we got the bike sorted out and then we finished the journey. So we probably would have taken 59 days had we not had that little bit of cheating going on. But we didn't We didn't tell the people who were involved in our charity about that. We <laughs> kept that quiet. <laughs> so anyone who sponsored okay. us and has listened now, I'm sorry, we lied. We didn't actually ride the whole way. But that's a secret, okay, between you and I yeah. uh, and your 10,000 listeners. Okay, thank you uh, very much, uh, uh, Jerry. Uh, I'm definitely going to have you back sometime to talk about your, your, your bicycling journeys. because right. that's oh, thank I, you. Big, big fan. And uh, and thank you again for appearing on our show to clear up some misconceptions uh, about China, about Xinjiang. And uh, I, if, if people want to follow you, where would they go? Well, Twitter or Medium, uh, the two places that I use uh, Medium just for writing. I'm not a vlogger. I'm not very good with video, so I don't use YouTube. Although people keep telling me, you need to be on YouTube. Maybe one day, but I'm not much of a vlogger. Um, my uh, address on both of them is the same as my Skype address here that where we're talking is Jerry underscore Gray 2002. Jerry underscore Gray, and it's J for Jerry, and Gray is G-R-E-Y 2002. And that's uh, my Twitter and my um, Medium okay. uh, IDs. I, I, will, I will put both links in the show notes for for Thanks. our um, my patron followers to 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 check out and again thank you very much jerry for coming to the thank show and really enjoyed thanks. talking to you and i look forward to the next one for sure and thank you everybody for tuning in until next time bye bye and that is our show thank you for tuning in for more content like this 
Search Silk and Steel Patreon in the Google search box or go to patreon.com type in Silk. The Silk and Steel podcast should be the first in the result. For $5 a month, you will receive premium patron-only episodes and early release episodes before they have been released to the public, as well as newsletters detailing everything happening in, out, and around China. I spend a lot of time and effort putting this together, and I do ask you for your support. I hope you enjoyed listening, and I hope you subscribe. Bye-bye. Thank you.